You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. Have you ever heard about what happened in 1972 with the Miami Dolphins? A number of you do not know what I'm talking about because you were not born. You would not be born for a few more decades. But friends, let's make sure we all now know what happened in 1972. 1972 was the year that the Miami Dolphins won the Super Bowl. (laughs) Yes, but wait for it. Only after completing a perfect season for the entire year, defeating every team they came up against. Now, this might be lost on most of you who are indifferent to sports or not aware of such trivial matters perhaps as that. But let me, if I can, just sort of set the scene here for you so you can appreciate why this is such a significant record. Not only because it's never been done again. In 2008, the New England Patriots were almost there. They made it to the Super Bowl, and then the bullies of the New York Giants beat them and crushed their hopes of a perfect season. But it's not just a statistical comparison that no one can compare to. It's it's actually the context by which this record was set. You see, friends, it wasn't until actually a few years earlier in 1970 when Don Shula was hired as the coach. He had not been coaching this team for a long time. In fact, the previous year, they had only won, before Shula was hired, they had only won three games and lost the rest. Shula comes in and he says, it's a time for a changeup. And he changes out the roster of a 53-team roster, 53-person roster. He changes out the roster with 22 new players. That's not just a hopes with this one wide receiver or this one quarterback or this one new safety or this better kicker. We're talking 40% of the team had changed. Uh, that seemed a bit radical for some people's sensibilities. You have to understand how the Miami Dolphins were considered at that time. One reporter describes them as being a misfit, loser, ragtag organization whose players were not disciplined and not committed. That was at least until Shula showed up. Back then, you have to understand something. It was common in the NFL that during off-season, all the players had other jobs. The average salary for them would have been $15,000 a year. And so during the off-season or in the summer, they'd go to other jobs. In fact, some of them actually made more money in their other jobs than they did as professional football players. Shula could care less if they had other jobs. He expected them to show up first thing in the morning before they went to their jobs to train and to lift weights. And he began to transform this team. 
1971, they made it as far as the Super Bowl, and they lost. And you know what he told them the beginning of the next season of 1972? He says, no one remembers who comes in second at the Super Bowl. They only remember who wins. And so that 1972 season began, and one victory after another after another until they're five victories into the season, and then they're all-star quarterback. The, the guy who just the previous year won the MVP of all the NFL, who was their quarterback. Someone from the opposing team accidentally steps on his leg, breaks it, twists his ankle. Their hopes seem dashed. They put in their second string. He's a 38-year-old player. His teammates called him the old man. We hope he can get us through. And get him through, he did. Victory after victory after victory. Until that day, January 14, 1973, when in Los Angeles, California, after having won already 16 games from regular season and playoff, they arrived in Los Angeles to play in the warmest Super Bowl on record up against the Washington Redskins. Now, you would think a team that was undefeated would be favored to win, but even then, the odds were against them. People didn't think that they would win. The, the comment was that the Washington Redskins had better opponents that they had to get through to get there, that they were favored to win. Looking promising in the beginning of the game, up 14 to zero, having an interception though by the Washington Redskins scoring a touchdown, it's now 14 and seven. And then finally, with sort of holding your breath moment of suspense, the clock runs out and the Miami Dolphins are declared the Super Bowl champions and the record was set. The perfect NFL season. All of this from a group of misfits. Against all odds, they did what very few people expected. My friends, it's been 53 years and seven days since that record was set. But today we're celebrating something different, something sweeter, and one that will not just be talked about by men for years to come, but will be honored by the Lord. Because, my friends, history is being made here this morning. As we celebrate five years of God's faithfulness to Grace Church. To better appreciate that, you have to understand something about the odds being against us. Some statistical studies report that up as high as 50 to even as high as 80% of all new church plants, all new churches, do not make it to their five-year anniversary. There's a number of reasons why that could be. Endless amounts of conferences and books and articles have been written to try to address this. But what we have seen here today is not a praise for anyone's giftedness but for praise for God's faithfulness, that in his sovereign grace, he has chosen to bless his word 
and the outpouring of it in transformed lives like you and me here this morning. Five years ago, 16 people, a group of misfits of sorts, covenanted together and started what would be known then as Grace Church. In January of 2019, we met a half a mile from here. We rented another church who was dying, who needed money, and we said, we'll give you money if you'll let us use your church facilities on Sunday nights. So 16 of us gathered. We had a phenomenal first service. Brothers like Al remembers that. But it's what you call high tide, low tide of church planting. All your friends and families show up. Providence Road Church showed up so much so it looked like we were a revival. We thought, man, we are God's gift to Miami. And then the next Sunday came, and it was just the 16 of us. If we had 35 people on a Sunday night, we felt like it was revival. We felt like maybe we are God's gift to Miami. All 35 of us, of course. But the reality was, we didn't know what the Lord had for us, except we knew what the Lord had already given us. His word, which taught us about his son, and that there was not only forgiveness through faith in him, but also that would tie us together as brothers and sisters. We were a bunch of orphans adopted by the same dad, who had the same savior, who are committed to the same mission. And we loved one another as we're yet getting to know one another. We did that for 15 months. And then this little thing called COVID happened. Every church planter's dream, global pandemic, shutting down the church. We were not able to meet for a variety of reasons for five months. Let me tell you, as a shepherd to sheep, that's not a good time. Pursuing them, praying with them, meeting with them. We finally were able to gather together under the benevolent care of Miami Shores Baptist Church who let us meet at this facility in a side chapel over here on Sunday nights, starting back up in August of 2020. We just began to return to the same thing we've been doing before, reading God's word, singing God's word, praying God's word, preaching God's word with the desire that we would obey God's word in doing so by the power of the Spirit for the glory of Christ. When we began five years ago, here's how we identified ourselves. You can see it on the screen. Grace Church is a family of redeemed sinners who have been forgiven through faith in Christ. And this is what we said our mission was years ago. Our mission is to joyfully display the glory of God by declaring the grace of God found in Jesus Christ and seeking to make, mature, and mobilize disciples of Christ. Here's the truth. Nothing has changed because the mission of the church hasn't changed. We're literally in those statements trying to simply summarize what the Bible says. This is why we have so much in common with our brothers and sisters in Nigeria, in Laos, in China, in Haiti, in Cuba, in Holland. It, it does not matter what language people speak. If they're called by God through faith in his son, 
to covenant together as they are as Christians. This is their mission around the world, and we are simply joining alongside many other faithful churches throughout the history of the city of Miami and desiring to multiply in numerous ways. Think about our mission, just breaking that down. Think about what it says there. We want to make disciples, we want to mature disciples, and we want to mobilize disciples. What do we mean by this? By making disciples, we want to see people have gospel clarity. There's a lot of people, perhaps even you, friend, who self-identify as a Christian. Maybe you were raised in a Christian church. You don't claim to be an atheist. You're not a Hindu. You don't subscribe to the teachings in the Quran and known as a Muslim. And so therefore, by default, you say, well, then I, I am by default a Christian. And we want to make sure people here understand what actually the Bible says about what a Christian is, what they believe, what they understand about Jesus Christ. We want gospel clarity and to see gospel conversion. People move from darkness to light, as we see in Ephesians 2. Secondly, we also want to see that we are maturing disciples. We don't want to just see people evangelize and come to faith in Christ. We want those who have come to faith in Christ to be maturing. We want us all to grow and to mature into the likeness of Christ, that we better represent him through our perspective and our priorities. We think differently and we act differently than we did before we knew the gospel. Third, you can see there, we want to be a church that's committed to mobilizing disciples. This means we not only want to live faithfully in our neighborhoods, faithfully in our workplaces, faithfully in our campuses, through our gospel representation, this also means we want to multiply. Our desire is to not grow bigger here, our desire is to grow and multiply out there. God answered our prayer in 2023 by us being able to plant our first church called Faith Church. We even have some of those members here with us today. Faith Church is one of what we pray will be many expressions of faithful churches being planted in other neighborhoods around South Florida with faithful pastors and faithful Christians who are living on mission together that they would see people in their community, not this community, in their community come to faith in Christ. We want to continue to pray to that end. But if I can take that mission there, making disciples, maturing disciples, and mobilizing disciples, let me turn our attention to that second aspect of our mission. I want us to answer this question from God's perspective. What does it mean to mature as disciples of Christ? What does it mean to mature as disciples of Christ. And to see that, turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, you can simply listen as I read it to you. However, if you would like one and you don't have one at home, we have them for you for free at the Welcome Center. You can pick up a copy. That's our gift to you. We'd love you to have a Bible. It's in a readable and accurate translation for you. It's our practice to go through the Bible. We want to hear not what do men say, what does God say? Philippians helps us with this. Now, as you turn to Philippians chapter 3, let me just give you context because we're parachuting into the text this morning so that you might understand this larger conversation Paul's been having with the church, not in the city of Miami, but in the city of Philippi. Paul is in prison. 
He loves these Christians. He's helped plant this church. This church core team, just to give you context for the core team of the church in Philippi, you think Grace Church maybe was a tag group of misfits. The first three Christians in the city of Philippi on record in the book of Acts is a fashion diva named Lydia, a redneck jailer who thought he was going to have to kill himself because Paul got out of prison, and a child, a former child of human trafficking that was demon-possessed. That's usually not the three people you picked to start a new church. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the gift of his word, that's what God chose. And so now years later, Paul's writing to this group of now Christians that's larger than those three to encourage them how to live for the Lord and what he desires to see as they strive side by side for the faith of the gospel in Philippians chapter one. He speaks about their, his desire to see humility, not just any humility, Christ-like humility in them in Philippians chapter two. And how they're to see the work of the Lord. And then in chapter three, after he issues a strong warning about false teachers, he says that in chapter three, verse two of Philippians, look out for the dogs, he says, for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. He pours water on their sandcastle of salvation by showing salvation is not by the law, but by faith alone. He turns his attention to his own Christian walk. Now, before we read the text, just consider with me by way of perspective, especially those of you who maybe are new to the Bible, to understand the author of his story. We'll talk about your story in a minute, but let's hear Paul's story just by context. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, he details how religious he used to be as a Jewish person. All the things he did to sort of earn his way to God. In Acts chapter 9, he details how he encountered the risen Christ in the Damascus Road and how he understood the gospel, how he exchanged his useless human achievements for the knowledge, righteousness, power, and fellowship and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. He would go on and describe in his writings from Ephesians to Corinthians to the Thessalonians to even personal writings to Timothy and to Titus, how he would describe that as a Christian, he was a new creature in Christ with a new heart, a new disposition. He was united with Christ. He had the mind of Christ. He had right standing before God. He had been justified. He had been forgiven. He was indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And by God's grace, he had been faithful. He had demonstrated great labor. He experienced many imprisonments. He endured countless beatings. He was stoned. He was beaten. He was shipwrecked several times. He experienced sleepless nights and hunger and thirst and slept in freezing conditions. And yet, it takes us to this context to better appreciate the surprise of what we now read in Philippians 3. Verses 12 through 14. Follow along as I read to you. Paul writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own 
Because Jesus, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul is essentially saying here in Philippians 3, verses 12 through 14, if I'm not dead, I'm not done. If I'm not dead, I'm not done. Friends, is, is that your sentiment? Is that you as well? Is that your perspective? What you see here in the text that I want to show you as a point of reference for us as a consideration of Christian maturity is that Paul demonstrates in his instruction, Christian maturity is seen by, number one, your perspective about your past. Number two, your priorities for your future. Let's look at them one at a time. Christian maturity is seen by your perspective about your past. Look, look back at what he says there in verse 12. Look at the kind of statements Paul makes about his past. He says, not that I have already obtained this. Not that I am already perfect. Christ Jesus has made me his own. I do not consider that I have made it my own, verse 13. Again, verse 13, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. Friends, there's rich significance to what's being said here in these verses in Paul's time, the false teachers, there were several of them, different groups of them, if you will. There were the Judaizers who basically taught that you could accomplish spiritual perfection and acceptance by God through their circumcision, through their keeping of the Mosaic law, through the obeying of what God's word says. Paul says, I've been there, done that. That won't save you. Go ahead, give me your, give me your best shot. Tell me all your best works. I've done more. It's not enough. There were other false teachers who had taught that the spiritual perfection was possible for those who accomplished a certain level of knowledge. And that it wasn't what you did with your body, it was what you believed in your mind. And if you just knew enough, you could accomplish perfection. Throughout church history, perfectionism has been believed and taught to others even eventually taught to some people that you can arrive at a point in your own life that you've attained a level of moral and spiritual perfection. One well-known person said that Christian perfection is attainable or practicable in this life. Not according to Paul. Not according to Paul. Irony here is to recognize under this sort of first consideration of your, your perspective about your past is both the honesty and the humility that you need when looking at your past. Honesty and humility. Let me just take those, if I can, in bite-sized pieces. Honesty. Honesty about your past is to recognize, depending on your perspective, you're either A, not as good as you think you were or are, or B, 
honesty to recognize that what you've done in your past does not define you presently nor in your future. Well, let's just remember the perspective here. The perspective is that Paul has, in fact, let's just look at it earlier in the verses. Look up to verse 5 and 6, what he says. He gives a sort of resume, if you will, of good works. He was, verse 5, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteous under the law, blameless. But, verse 7, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. Friends, Paul's past is some of your present. Here's what I mean. Paul used to put his confidence in his good works to gain acceptance and favor from God. My concern is that there are some of you here who think like that. You are by ethical comparison of what you used to do that you no longer do or used to not do that you now do or by ethical comparison of others around you, you're kind of feeling pretty good about yourself. A bit of a life improvement, self-help program, if you will. And maybe already 2024 is proving to be quite helpful. Paul said, I used to think like that too. There's no place in the Bible you could go that I didn't know, had memorized. I was taught in these things. He says, I, I counted all of that my righteousness, my goodness. He says, it was rubbish. Now, rubbish is a bit of a British term, if you will. A bit of a, a trash heap. A bit of a, hear God, accept my pile of garbage. He's like, that's not going to get me anywhere with the Lord. I realized I had to simply say, I am not saved by good works. I am saved only through Christ's good works and my faith in him alone because of his grace alone that I'm ever going to be accepted. And I count everything as lost. For him, that was his past. But for some of you, is that still your present? Friends, if so, I'm calling you new to repent, to see the invitation of Christ who forgives sinners who do not put their confidence in their good works, but only in Christ's good works. But I said it's not only the sense of honesty, it's also the sense of humility. Friends, the reality, as you can see here in the text of what Paul is saying it's the significance of how Paul is addressing this. In verses 7 through 11, he speaks about counting everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Verse 9, being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that comes through faith in Christ, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection may share in his sufferings, becoming like him as death, that by any means I might attain the resurrection from the dead. He, in verses 7 through 11, is talking about his life becoming a Christian, and now in verses 12 through 14, his life now living as a Christian. There are some of you in this room who are Christians, 
who still struggle with your past. One of the most common reoccurring temptations for Christians is to do what we see Adam and Eve in the garden did in Genesis, which is they go hide from God because of the shame they feel and the guilt they have because of what they have done. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not trying to just whitewash some really difficult days of your past as if it's not significant, it's not personal, it's not embarrassing, it's not painful. But I I want to be clear as well. Your brother in the faith, Paul, he would say, come here for a second. Let, Let me have a conversation with you. What's going on with you? You're saying, Paul, I don't, <laughs> I don't think you know my story. He's like, all right, tell me. Man, you, you don't know the things I've done. Okay, I, I get that. Tell me. Man, these, these drugs I have used, these people I have slept with, these words I have spoken, this money that I've stolen, these crimes that I've committed, I don't think you understand There's no way someone like me could ever really sort of be fully accepted at the dining room table of Christian fellowship. I I should sit in the other room with my leftovers, only not really being with the family of God. Because I can imagine, Eric, if you understood, everybody in this room does not understand what I understand experientially, which is I still live in the shame and guilt of what I did. Even though I know I'm forgiven, I feel so bad. And Paul, with his arm around you, would say, actually, I totally understand. You're like, you do? We just got finished reading about your awesomeness. He would say, listen, you know what I used to do? I used to plot and conspire with my excited hands and my eager heart to find Christians like you to have you arrested, have you tortured, and have you killed? Oh. All right, so my lines of coke maybe doesn't seem to be as much. What? I don't understand. Paul, are you serious? Paul says, listen, what was in my past has been paid for on the cross. That does not define me, and it should not define you. That's not how God sees you because God has covered you with the righteousness of Christ. That's exactly what he's talking about here. He's talking about not having a righteousness of my own, verse 9, that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Paul will not let his past distract him, define him, or discourage him. For those of you who are Christians, are you letting your past do that? And you can see the second part of his Christian maturity is not only seen by his perspective, it's also your priorities for your future. Your perspective about your past, but also your priorities for your future. Look again at the statements of Paul in verse 12. He says, I press on to make it my own, straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. One of the favorite things I enjoy watching as my wife sometimes has to endure this is to watch 
track and field events. Usually when the world championships come around, I'll get caught up in watching them as I watch the highlights on YouTube. That's as committed as I am. And one of the things that's sort of always marvel in that sort of track and field time, whether it be the 200 or the 400 or the 100, and part of that is because I used to do track and field when I was in high school. I was horrible at all of it, but I enjoyed all of it was seeing them in the starting blocks. You know in the starting blocks, they're, they're not like the long distance runners. They kind of get up to the line and like, go. No, no. The sprinters, the ones who are going to be in a, in a short distance race, comparatively speaking, they get on the floor, they get in position, and they, and they position their feet against these blocks that they're going to propel themselves out of the starting line onto that race course, pushing off those blocks. Paul says here in the text, two different times, verse 12, verse 14, I press on. It's focusing on a level of effort and energy, laser-like focus. He speaks about this goal in verse 14, this goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. His desire was to see Christ honored in his life, that Christ would be honored in his death. No matter what he had done for the Lord, he wanted to continue to serve the Lord. What does that look like for you, friend? For those of you who are in Christ, what does it look like for you to mature? Let me give you some ideas, some common stages of Christian maturity, and I hope these are kind of helpful benchmarks or, so to speak, reference points for you. Initially, it's being surrendered to Christ. Surrendered to Christ means you're no longer a rebel fighting against him. You are now a worshiper following him. You have surrendered to the Lord. You understand the good news of Christ and you've given your life to Christ. Then secondly, there usually is immediately a change in what you practice with your Christian ethics. You stop doing the things that you used to do before you became a Christian. You, you feel bad. Your conscience is bothering you. The, the things you used to say, the way you used to talk about people, the place you used to go, how you used to spend your money, you're like, ah, that's not me anymore. I don't want to do that anymore. So your Christian ethics begin to change. Thirdly, you can see there, you start serving others, which is sometimes so surprising for some of you because you used to be so self-centered, thinking only of yourself, your time, your money, your space, your life. Next thing you know, you're like, dude, I, I just like, I love volunteering. I love helping people. What can I do around here? How can I help? You can see their next ones up happening. You start growing in Christian doctrine. You start going, I knew enough to get saved, but I didn't know much more than that. Could somebody teach me how to know the Bible? I don't know how to read it. I don't know top from bottom. Do I begin in Genesis like all other books? Do I start in the book of John? You start learning who is God and all the work he has done, and it blows your mind. And then you begin to see the sense of Christian community as a part of your life. I actually could look at your schedule, your week, your calendar, and I would find other Christians in this church with you. It's not just your community groups you go to. It's the hospitality. Listen to what Danny Cruz said earlier. He's like, yeah, I got invited to dinner, and I thought, this is weird. You know what Danny Cruz and Victoria Cruz do now? They invite people to dinner at their place. Some of those people think, well, this is weird. Dan's like, I know, I used to think like that too. Christian community is a part of your life. And then you begin to then next deal with your past. Sometimes Christians are tempted to stay busy and never stop and address through the lens of Scripture with the help of other godly mature Christians things in their past. 
the shame, the guilt, the anxiety, the fear, even the sometimes struggle in talking to God. If he's a father, I've never known a good father. I'm worried about what he's going to abandon me like my other father did. How to stand and address those issues in your past. And then you can see there, you begin ultimately to audit your priorities and your affections. It's not what you can and cannot do. It's what you want to do and don't want to do. You move from what's right and wrong to what's wise and godly. And then you start to disciple and help others because you begin to not just think of yourself, begin to help others around you. Friends, this is what it's like to live in a way for the good of others. Paul would say this earlier in Philippians. He would say in Philippians chapter one, hey, listen, I'm in prison. I might die or I might live. I hope I die because it'd be absent from the body of the presence of the Lord, but if I live, it'll be for the good of others. Who's good, who's glad rather that you're alive because they're benefiting from your life? What kind of sacrifices are you making? What kind of love have you shown? I want to show you an example of a sacrifice. Someone that's modeled that when it was not easy because for you, maybe God's calling you to make a similar sacrifice. So we see here on the screens what I want you to uh, see. Uh, all right. Let's see not crying. I can do this. All right, here we go. One of the things I'm so thankful about in the last five years at Grace Church, and really I think an unsung hero to the story of Grace Church, is Danelle Bancroft, my wife, my queen. You know, the reality is, no matter how much I would have wanted to come to plant a church in Miami, it would not have happened if my wife was not supportive of that. And it's not because she leads our home, it's because I wanted to do so as a couple together. I wanted to do so with her in mind. Incredibly gifted. It was going to be as much of a sacrifice for her as it was going to be for me. And with lots of prayer and lots of tears and lots of counsel, we as a couple decided to make this decision. And in the last five years, I have seen my wife do countless hospitality. The, the earliest core team meetings were in our house. So many, so many meetings, so much discipleship in our house, our late night community group meetings, going to as late as two o'clock in the morning in our house, all of the endless discipleship of women to women, one to one, Danelle to a group of them in our house, in addition to raising her sons, teenage sons in Miami, not the easiest place to reach teenage sons, uh, in addition to living meagerly on a budget with so little but yet trying to accomplish so much. And yet to do so, uh, supporting her husband, loving her husband, um, it's been a privilege of mine to be in ministry with her, a joy of mine to be in ministry with her. So thankful. And, uh, and I'm really glad to be able to say, Grace Church is the church it is today publicly because of the wife I have personally who has ministered more often privately than most people see. And I'm so thankful for her and the gift that she is to Grace Church. As I honor my wife publicly and use her illustratively to say that I not only love her, let me ask you the question. 
If we were to make a video of your life, what would it teach us? What have you, like Paul, been committed to that you're willing to sacrifice for the sake of others? You're willing to give up time, money, comfort, security, reputation, ease, health, that you, like Paul, would desire to see the gospel advance. Friends, God has placed us, and us includes you individually, for a season collectively in Miami. And who is thankful that we are, like Paul, pressing on that Christ might be seen in us. Look at what he says in verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Friends, you desire to be an example to other Christians and you do that in part by finding examples that you hope to imitate. My wife, after being gone for 20 years with me from Miami, being born and raised here, with no, offen no offense to all of us in Miami, said, I'm never moving back to Miami. But surrendered to God's will for us as a couple and for us as a family, that by God's enabling work, we might be able to plant Grace Church. God might not be calling you to go to some other city or to be in some other church, but he is calling you to live for him here in the same way that Paul was living for him in prison. And that's the desire to see that Christian maturity is seen by your perspective about your past and your priorities for your future. Now I have a final exercise I want to do with all of you. And then I will pray over all of you. A visual, if you will. If you are a part of the original 16 members who covenanted together in January 2019, and for the sake of time, please don't applaud, though I know it's in your heart to do so. If you're part of the original 16, would you please stand and stay standing? Some of them, ironically, are actually outside getting ready to serve you. They've been doing so for five years and they continue to do so. Some of them are in children's ministry right now. Okay. Now, with them standing, if you came to Grace Church and continued with us, arriving in 2019 after we began, we were meeting at Miami First Christian Church on Sunday nights at 5 o'clock, would you please stand if you came in 2019 in this church? If you came in 2020, when we moved after COVID to this location, meeting in the side chapel over here, would you please stand? If you came in 2021, my God's grace, kind of outgrowing that space, 
Miami Shores Baptist Church gave us permission to meet in this room still on Sunday nights in 2021. Would you please stand? If you came in 2022, having been a part of now the merge or having come after the merge when my Shores Baptist Church and Grace Church began to meet together on Sunday mornings in this room, starting in 2022, would you please stand? And if last year in 2023, was your first time beginning to be a part of this family, maybe not yet even still today committed to this church, but yet nevertheless dating us for as long as you have, being a part of Grace Church since 2023, meeting here, would you please stand? And perhaps you've only been with us now for one, two, three weeks. And 2024 is your first time being with us. Would you please stand? Now to the rest of you, so that you don't feel left out. <laughs> Would you please stand? Now, friends, listen to me. I have asked you to stand in this room as a visible display of how God has been working in our church. But God is now asking you to stand in this city for him. And to know that when you leave this place, you might feel very alone. You are, after all, in the minority of this place, of this city, rather. But these are those around you, for those whose faith is in Christ. Some of you, perhaps today is the day to, for your first time in your life to stand for Christ by giving your life to Christ. Ask him to forgive you and putting your faith in him alone for the forgiveness of your sins. Others of you, since then, dealing with your past and now pressing forward to what God has for your future, to do so, but here's the key, to not do so individually, to do so in community, as a bride, as a family of brothers and sisters in Christ, I want to now pray for you that you would press on towards the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So if you would, please bow your heads and close your eyes as I pray for you. Heavenly Father, a delight to see with my eyes what I know to be true in these years that have passed by, you, God, are building your church. It's not Grace Church. It's not my church. It's your church. Jesus, you declared this in Matthew 16, that the gates of hell would not prevail against you building your church. We thank you for the faithful witnesses around this city, Christ family. Palm Vista, Stan Memorial. God, we thank you for the faithful churches that are heralding the gospel and have done so, some of which for decades, if even not over a century. 
We even thank you for the faithfulness of Miami Shores Baptist Church and their open-heartedness to unite with us to continue advancing the gospel here in Miami Shores and beyond. Father, I pray not only for us as a church collectively, Lord, I pray for each of these individuals specifically. God, where are you calling them to take a step of maturity? Where are you calling them to press on towards the upward call of God found in your son, Jesus Christ? God, I pray that you would unite us as a church, loving one another, serving one another. And God, I pray that we would honor you not only as a community of Christians, but as representatives of your son in this city. Not just through the ethics that we demonstrate, the right versus the wrong, but also the affections and the priorities we have. God, we pray that you would be glorified in us, that in everything Christ your son would be preeminent. We pray this for the good of ourselves, for the good of our city, and for the glory of your name above all. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.